uh, back in probably mid, maybe early to mid 2014, Amy and I were thinking and praying about um, whether we should try and add to our family. At this point, we had uh, two children. We had Grace, who is now sort of knocking on the door of seven, and Joseph, who's now just five. So we're both pretty young. But we were just beginning to pray about whether it was right to, um, to try and, uh, and extend our family. And um, I've, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I come from, I'm, I'm one of two. And so, uh, you know, I perhaps was more towards the side of, we've got quite a lot of kids, don't we, <laughs> already? Amy's one of four. And so she was sort of like, well, we've not even really begun, have we? <clears throat> and so uh, I, I sort of grew up with this sense of, oh, would it be nice to have maybe another sibling around the place? I obviously, I never admitted that to Amy. So my approach was, I wouldn't mind... Um, if God were in it and were willing, I wouldn't mind ending up with three children. Um, but I knew that Amy really wanted three plus. So I, I didn't want to admit that I would be okay with three. So I said to her, no, 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 it's two, it's two, it's two, it's two. And she wanted four. So I sort of relented finally. I mean, all along, that was my plan. <laughs> I relented finally, uh, thinking, well, if I, if I then agree for the third, we'll stop at three, and that will be a nice compromise. So that's how it worked. We agreed that we would have three children. In Amy's early pregnancy, she was perhaps a little bit more tired um, than she had been for the other two. Now, I didn't think much of it. I don't think she thought too much of it at this point. We were both a little bit older. We now had two children to look after as she was pregnant. So that was sort of maybe to be expected. She was also slightly more nauseous as well uh, than she had been for both children. And we've had, we, you know, we'd had a boy, we'd had a girl. So we thought we'd tried both. So we're not sure it was anything different about this particular pregnancy. Anyway, we went to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital sometime in the summer, I think, of 2014. And we sat down, and the sonographer, a very, very nice Australian lady, if you're interested, uh, a lovely, lovely lady, she, um, you know, did the bit with all the, you know, gel, put the gel on Amy's belly, and I was just sat comfortably looking at the wall. Now, I know I was looking at the wall, I know exactly the spot that I was looking on the wall. And she put the gel on, and then she put the, um, the probe, I guess, on top of the gel and started to wiggle it around, and, and then she took it off immediately, put it on, Looked, took it off, and giggled. <laughs> and then she put it back on. She said, one, two. And, um, and it became apparent. Um, it became apparent. And I sort of zoned out at that moment. And I, <laughs> I, tell you, I was looking directly ahead at the wall. Uh, and I was looking directly ahead at the wall for the next five minutes. I didn't move my gaze as they just, I, they just zoned. I just disappeared from my listening, it became apparent that we uh, were to be doubly blessed. And we were, and we have been doubly blessed. Two children at the same time. As it happens, Tim, uh, I, went, I went back to work. I had to work that afternoon, so I went back to work, cycled back to work. And I saw my cousin, Tim, who's coming in a couple of weeks, who uh, was also my boss at this point. Now, I, I tell you what, in two years working for him, I've barely seen him, in, seen him in the office. But he just happened to be there, so I said, Tim, I just need to chat with you. I think I was ashen-faced and quite shocked, and so we chatted. And I said, Tim, we're having twins. And he just laughed hysterically. <laughs> Now, I knew when we uh, heard that we were going to be blessed with twins uh, that we were in for disruption. I knew we were in for disruption. Two to four children, what an incredible blessing. But I knew it was going to be disruptive for us. I had no idea. I had no idea the extent of the disruption that it would be. 
Uh, I was at the time studying for a degree and, and be in the process of being ordained. Uh, we had two kids. I had a job. It was pretty much a full-time job as well. And uh, to say that the next two years were a challenge would be a major uh, understatement. I remember putting various times putting them to, to bed uh, at night. And, and I, what happened was I would take the older two and Amy would deal with the younger two. And I'd put, I remember once or twice putting the, I probably told you this before, but I'd put the older two to bed and I'd slink down, you know, shut the door, fall down on the floor, with, you know, my back to the door and just cry. It was so overwhelming. All of these challenges. It was such a time of disruption. When I look back, however, what I see is that that time of disruption in my life brought about the most extraordinary enlargement. The most extraordinary growth of my capacity as a human being and of God's uh, grace and blessing in my life. That isn't unique to having children. That is something that is true about life. That in the times where we are disrupted, in the times where change occurs, sometimes change which is positive and sometimes at other times change which is negative. In those times, God is able to do things in and around us, within us. He's able to enlarge our souls. He's able to speak things to us that we just wouldn't have the ears to hear otherwise. And he's able to deposit, if you like, things in us that can't go in any other way. I want to talk this morning about holy disruption. And I want to talk from two angles. First, I want to talk about it from a personal angle. What does it mean to be disrupted by God? What might God be wanting to do in us in this time of disruption? Because we're all going to be in a time of disruption. If you haven't experienced disruption yet, it's not possible. You will have. You know, even the youngest among us, we've already changed schools probably, or we've, or we've made and broken and made friendships. And the oldest of us have been disrupted many times, many different phases and seasons in our lives. There is no end to the human experience of disruption. There's no moment that it stops. It carries on until we go to be with Jesus. Disruption is a part of all of our lives. But God is able to do something on a personal level, but also I want to say something this morning about what God, I think, wants to do with us as a church through a season, a coming season, I believe, of holy disruption. And I want to do that by looking at Zacchaeus. Now, I just, I just go on a level with you. I just love this story. I actually had a plan to speak on a completely different story. I'm going to talk about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, which is also, let's be honest, a sexy story. Uh, you know, when it comes to the Bible, that's a really good one. Some of you have just woken up. He's, he said sexy. <laughs> What's he talking about? What was that? But then we were praying on Tuesday at staff prayers. We always pray for you. We pray for the church. And Vicky uh, was talking about, she just mentioned Zacchaeus. And I just thought when she was saying, yeah, that's right. We need to speak about Zacchaeus. The story of Zacchaeus is a story all about disruption. There's disruption at every level of this story. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus is on his way, it says. Chapter 19 of Luke. You open it up if you've not got it open. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through, was passing through. Jesus' intention was not to stay in Jericho. That wasn't the point. Jesus was just on his way. He'd already determined that he was on his way to Jerusalem where he planned fully by the will of God to die. He told his disciples about this three times. They'd heard absolutely zero of those warnings. But Jesus is on his way through. 
And in the middle of him going on his way through, he's about 20 kilometers at this point from Jerusalem being in Jericho, in the middle of this journey, he is disrupted. Now this journey that Jesus is on has been all about disruption. If you just read before uh, chapter 19, what we see is uh, that Jesus uh, has a series of confrontations with religious figures. And then in chapter 18, about verse 15, Jesus talks about little children and how valuable they are in the kingdom of God. That's a disruptive thing that he says. He then goes to a rich young ruler, a rich young man, and, uh, and he turns the tables over on what is valuable. He disrupts this young man by saying that this man, if he wants to enter into the kingdom of God, has to disrupt everything, his entire value system, to enter into the kingdom. He then see, we see a blind beggar shouting out, and Jesus disrupts his life by giving him his sight back. And all the way through each of this story, these stories, what Jesus is doing is this. He's redefining what is valuable in the kingdom of God. And in so doing, he's disrupting worldviews. He's disrupting lives. Jesus is so disruptive, he gets killed for it. There will be times in our lives where it's not just life disrupting us, it's Jesus disrupting us. Beware, be, I mean, literally be aware of those moments. God is at work uniquely, I think, in those moments. And actually, if we live, can I let me say on the flip side, if we live a life which is so serene and comfortable that it never changes, I would question whether we're really engaging with all that God has for us. If our lives are so serene and comfortable all the time and they just motor on without, I'm not talking about emotional stability here. Amy, why? I perhaps, Amy might agree that I perhaps could do with a little bit more of sort of serenity at different times. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying if, if, if we never expect change, we're never open to disruption, we might need to ask Jesus, hang on, Lord, is there something you want to disrupt? He does that, doesn't he? He disrupts the comfortable and he comforts the disrupted the disturbed. He's redefining what's valuable. And he comes to Zacchaeus, a man, as we're about to find out, who nobody else seems to think has any value. Now Zacchaeus does have a few things working for him. What has he got in his favour? Well, first of all, uh, he's a man. And that in this culture would mean a lot. He was, he was male. If he had some level in this culture of, of, of priority and value, just inherently from being a male, furthermore, he was, Jew, he was a Jew, he was a Jewish man. And again, in the Jewish culture, uh, that meant that he was at least uh, predisposed to receiving value from others. The text tells us, actually, you don't get this in, this, in the English translation, but that he's a ruler, now, it says here, a chief tax collector, uh, and it might be that he's a ruler amongst tax collectors. In other words, he's a boss, he's a, like a local overseer. But actually, the word just means that he has, he, he's somebody who would be looked up to, uh, maybe professionally, maybe personally. And it says as well that he's wealthy. Now, wealth in Luke's, Luke's gospel thus far is, is very ambiguous. And actually, in the culture surrounding it, it's ambiguous. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a person of value if you're wealthy. The question would be uh, a little bit about how you came to your wealth. Was it something that you inherited, in which case that might be perceived more positively? Or did you get it through unjust gain, and therefore you might be received more negatively? But there's a few things, at least there, that aren't necessarily negative, and in fact might be positive. And yet still, 
still Zacchaeus does not seem to have the respect of his peers. Why? One reason, at least, that's very clear, and that's this. He is a tax collector. I read uh, uh, one commentator this week who said, and I think this sums it up, tax collectors were, I quote, universally hated by all. I think that by all is redundant there. Universally hated probably does it, but there we go. Universally hated by all. If you were a tax collector, you were seen as a symbol of Roman oppression. There you were, collecting my hard-earned money and giving it to Caesar. You would just, you'd have been hated by all. And maybe it's for that reason that Zacchaeus seems so unpopular. How do we know he's unpopular? Well, it says, interesting here, it says Zacchaeus. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Now, that word short could, li- could physically mean short. It probably does. And actually, to be short in this culture, it's a long time ago, probably means that Zacchaeus was maybe five foot or less. So he was quite short. Perhaps that's why he climbs this tree, that his stature is short. But actually, if you think about it, Zacchaeus being physically short doesn't necessarily mean he couldn't have seen Jesus. You imagine if a king or a queen was in that crowd and they were short. The crowd surely would have parted and allowed that person to go through and to see the, uh, the powerful, the uh, impressive prophet rolling into town. The fact is that what's going on here is that the crowd has formed an obstacle to Zacchaeus. And because he's short, he can't surmount that obstacle naturally. In other words, the crowd has shut him out. They place no value on him. For some reason, probably because he's a tax collector, maybe some other reason too, Zacchaeus is seen as an outsider. And that's what we do, isn't it? We create boundaries. We just naturally do it as humans. We can't help it. We create boundaries and we say, uh, well, this far, anyone who's sort of here is in. And anyone who's outside of here is out. Now you can get in. If you behave a certain way, if you look a certain way, if you think a certain way, if you act a certain way, you can be in. And those people are out. And then you join in, right? That's how a lot of cultures work. That's how how we work. We form communities that way often as, as humans, now, tragically, we often think that way as Christians as well. And we say, well, are you, if you're in the church, you're in. If you're outside, you're out. And our job is to make this boundary really, really clear and really firm. And, and some churches formalize this as well. You make you jump over a bar that's this high to get in. What we see with Jesus is, is it's not that the boundary doesn't exist necessarily, but it's that everybody's confused. He keeps... He turns it on his head. And people who everyone else thought were outsiders, people like Zacchaeus, who just didn't look right, they didn't sound right, they didn't smell right, they didn't act right, find that those people are right at the heart of God's plan. And people who surely were in, religious people, pastors, Doctors, people with social esteem, the wealthy, 
established groups, Jesus redefines what it means to be in for them. It's not that they're shut out, it's that, but they need to understand that the only way to come to Jesus is in repentance. The outsiders know that, they understand that, and they naturally do it. When they come to Jesus, it's in repentance. But the ones who already think they're in, they won't come to Jesus on their knees. And so they miss out. What Zacchaeus has going for him, more than anything else, is this. He is hungry. He is spiritually hungry. I think this is the most important spiritual characteristic. More than anything else, it is this. Are we hungry for God? The most important thing about, about your relationship with God is not how much of the Bible you know. Now, I love the Bible. I love it. And I, I, love, I love reading it. Uh, it goes up and down. I'm not saying that every morning. I'm just like, woo! Leviticus! <laughs> but I do, I love it. I, and I love reading it. And I, I'm glad, I love that I know a bit of it and I want to learn more of it. But it's not the most important thing. I love coming to church. I love being here. I love singing worship songs. I love, I love, I love all that stuff. I love, but beneath that, there's something else that's way more important. The knowledge about something about God, what's more important is, is hunger for God. The most important thing, that, the, the most positive thing that could be said about this community as far as I'm concerned is this, that this community would be hungry for God. Zacchaeus is hungry for God. He's so hungry for God that, that he climbs a tree. Now, again, for a, for, for a first century man, this was not the done thing. Like He would be embracing shame, particularly for an adult. He'd be embracing shame by doing this. But he's willing to be ashamed because he's just so desperate to see Jesus. Climbs on his tree, gets up on top of his tree, just so he can see Jesus, just wants to see Jesus. And so all of a sudden, he can see over the crowd. Craig is filling out a risk assessment as I climb. I'll get down before this goes all wrong. But Zacchaeus elevates his view so he can see Jesus. He's just desperate to see Jesus. There's a hunger that causes him to embrace shame. There's something more important than how he looks. One commentator said, Zacchaeus goes to extraordinary lengths to see Jesus. Something happens here which flips the whole thing on its head. Zacchaeus is hoping to see Jesus. And in the middle of it all, he's seen by Jesus. Zacchaeus is hoping to see Jesus. And in the middle of it all, he's seen by Jesus. What does Jesus see? I think he's, who knows, I, mean, I think he sees hunger. I think he sees somebody who's desperate. And he loves desperation. He loves it. Jesus loves the desperate. He loves the hungry. He loves those who are pursuing him. And so Jesus begins his own just wave of disruption. He just, Jesus is like, okay, let's do this. He disrupts the kids. He says, get down out of that tree. I'm coming to your house for dinner. <laughs> this, by the way, was not the done thing. And we know that. Chris Becker, I'm coming around for dinner. I'm coming for lunch. Is that okay? And they're smiling, but they're panicking inwardly. 
because they haven't cleaned the house. And have you cleaned the house? Maybe you have. That you know. <laughs> This is how I'd be feeling, I've not cleaned the house and I haven't got anything in the fridge and oh my gosh. We all understand that, but in this culture, even more so, it would be uh, not the done thing to invite yourself over for dinner, but Jesus does it. Breaks all the social convention because he wants and he sees the heart of this man. He disrupts this man's day plan. This whole thing is deeply disrupting, not just to Zacchaeus and to Jesus, but also to the crowd. What do the crowd say? Uh, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And it's as if, it's as if they're saying, you know, beneath, beneath the lines, you can almost hear them saying, this guy can't be a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would know that he's a tax collector. Can't he see his bling? Can't he see the fact that this guy just flashes the cash around? My hardened cash. He must be taking a cut. He's probably on 20%. Lying in his pockets with my money. Can't Jesus see? He must not be who we thought he was. What we see in this disruptive story, this holy disruption is enlargement, is fruit, is life pouring from Zacchaeus. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, presumably this is during or after dinner, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. Not to get overly technical, but sit with me with this for a second. In the original language, that's a present tense phrase. In other words, I give half of my possessions to the poor. There's two ways to interpret that. The first is as the NRV does, which is to say, uh, uses a a futuristic present, like I will give. That's what I'm going to do going forward. Here and now I give. I'm going to do this now from here on and for the future. Does that make sense? That's one way, but an equally valid way to interpret it is to say that Zacchaeus is actually saying, my custom, what I do naturally, what I... What I do sort of week in, week out is that I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I ever find I've defrauded somebody, I pay back four times the amount. Now, ultimately, we're never going to know exactly which one Zacchaeus is referring to. But I think there's, there's mileage in both. Either way, what's happening in this story is that Jesus is bringing disruption And what he's doing is he's recognizing that this person who everybody else said was an outsider actually belongs right at the heart of the people of God, right at the heart of the family. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. They thought he was an outsider. Jesus says he belongs. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Why does Jesus bring disruption? Here's why. Because Jesus comes to bring lost things home. A lost sheep. A 
lost coin, a lost son, a lost city. Jesus disrupts us because he wants to bring us home. Jesus is at work in your life, disrupting the comfortable places because he wants to bring you home. He wants you to understand that all of you belongs in his presence, with him at home, that the Father speaks a word to you, and the word is, come home. And he wants to say to you, there's no place in your life that's too far outside his plan. There's nothing that you're ashamed of that he doesn't know about and welcome. There's no place in you. There's no person in your life who he doesn't want to beckon home, doesn't want to welcome home. There's no person in this city that Jesus doesn't want to welcome home. What does it mean for us? Individually, what does this mean? Well, firstly, I think it means that we need to hear the word of Jesus to us. Come home. Where, we need to ask the question, where is it he's disrupting us right now? What is it he might want to do? Where is it we might need to press in, to step into the disruption? To pray through it with him, to sit with somebody else we know and ask them, hey, can you see what God's trying to do in my life? Can you help me? Can you join with me in it? Can you pray through this with me? Maybe that's how we need to respond today. Maybe there's a tree we need to climb up. Figuratively speaking. Although, by the way, I've got a great friend who, who was an atheist who came to faith up a tree. She, she was up a tree. She was lying back in the arms of the tree and she just had an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. She wouldn't have said that at that time. But she just was overwhelmed with the, the sense that God was, that there was a God. The universe was perfect. There was a God who had made it. So maybe some of you do need to climb a tree. But figuratively speaking, we need to climb a tree. We need to get up a tree. Shift our perspective. You've, you, maybe you've done that by being here. But maybe there's something else God's calling you to. 